0: Well, it is the week of that great sociological experiment called Thanksgiving, or Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and Thanksgiving dinner is interesting because we sit down with a bunch of people that we don't usually sit with. Um, my, bro- my brother described family this way. He said, family are the people in the world that you have the least in common with, that you would not invite to any of your parties, and you go through the most stressful times of life with them uh holidays weddings, funerals that's family right and uh and it's it's tough and and over the last few years and a, a lot of Thanksgiving dinners have become uh, stressful as as we sit down with uh people who are who are on the other side, whatever side we're on, they're on the other side. It could be, you know, the all-important football. They could be cheering for the wrong team, or it could be politics, or it could be religion, or it could be uh, race. It could be all kinds of things, and we're sitting down at a table with them. And if that's hard for you, what I want you to do is ask yourself, why are we sitting together? And typically, it's not because... Uh, we're family. I mean, there's a lot of people I'm related to. Typically, we're sitting down together because there is someone at that table that we are all committed to. Mom, grandmom, dad, granddad. There is somebody at that table that we all share this this intimate relationship with. And, And what I want you to do is I want you to find that person on Thursday. Think about them and, and and say to yourself, maybe pray to the Lord, Father, I want this day to really bless that person. I want everything I say, everything I do to bless this person that is the reason why we are all united. Everybody in this table is one with each other because we are one with her, one with him. And us Loving each other is going to bless them. I, I want you to do that because that is uh, exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us that every worship service should be like. We are one with Jesus. The reason we're all in this room together is because we share that. And that is the most important thing about us. The defining characteristic about us, the thing that goes deeper than anything else about us, is that our faith has united us to Jesus. And therefore, it unites us to each other. And, and that's what I want you to see this morning. that Our faith has made us one with Christ. Therefore, we are one in Christ with each other. Please stand as we read from Galatians chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for in christ jesus you are all sons of god through faith for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female you are all one in christ jesus and if you are christ's then you are abraham's offspring heirs according to promise thus far the reading of god's word all men are like grass and all of our glories like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall but not god's word god's word stands forever you may be seated our faith has made us one with jesus and therefore we are one with each other we are one in christ with each other it's The first thing I want you to see is what our faith does. Uh, And it's very—it's easy to get this wrong, okay? And and I need you to get it right. It's going to sound like I'm splitting hairs, but I am not. This is a big deal, okay? Your faith does not save you. Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. Your faith unites you to Jesus. Um, Let me illustrate the difference. I spent my summers, y'all have heard this story a million times, but eventually you'll get through. Uh, I used to spend my summers when I was in high school as a lifeguard. In my mind, you know, I was I was David Hasselhoff. I was, you know, the guy who everybody looked up to. And uh, in reality, I was babysitting a bunch of 11- and 12-year-olds. Um, but, you know, it was a job. it paid the bills, and I got a good tan. And I never had to bother to do anything but blow my whistle. That was it. I never went in the water during normal working hours, but during parties, the same thing would happen almost every night. Private parties would rent the public pool out, and people could kind of do what they want. It's very relaxed, Um, and uh, I would just kind of stand around the edge of the pool. And four different times this happened, a mom—I don't know why—it was a mom it was always a mom, which would be trying to teach little Johnny how to swim. And little Johnny knew how to swim. And so what she was trying to do is convince little Johnny that if you can swim in the shallow end, you can swim in the deep end, which is a good thing for him to learn. But the way she decided to teach him was this. She would go out in the deep end, 11 feet of water. Johnny would be on the diving board, and she would say, jump to me some of you see what's going on here right? Johnny jumps right on her face every time and she gets a big gulp of water and so she is now struggling and Johnny is hanging on for dear life to her head right and I got eyeballs looking at me like are you going to do something about this and I'm like but the water's cold and I wasn't planning on getting wet And I'm a bad lifeguard. You're supposed to reach, throw, then go. But I just jump in because it's two whole feet to the side. And I look at Johnny and I say, come to me. And so Johnny lets go of mom and grabs hold of me. And I pull him to the side and save his life, actually. Now, that embrace is faith. Johnny had faith in his mother and she was drowning. And that faith in his mother was going to kill Johnny. But then I came, and he put faith in me. And putting faith in me saved his life. That embrace did not save his life. If I had thrown him a rock, embracing the rock would not have helped. I saved his life, for the sake of illustration. The embrace united him to me. Okay? Faith in Jesus... Unites us to life. It makes us one with him and He saves us now. Why is that important? Well for a lot of reasons one is Because a lot of you because you're Christians and you're in the church a lot of you wonder if your faith is strong enough You wonder is your faith sincere enough? And you're worried that if it's not Maybe there's something wrong, and maybe that's why you're going through hard times in life, or maybe you won't even hang on to the end. Maybe you won't even be saved because your faith isn't strong enough. And I want you to understand something. Your salvation, your position in the kingdom of heaven, your stature before God is based on who your faith is in, not on how strong it is. There's a, uh, a legend up in Minnesota about a man who first moved out there in his first winter, and he was really, he was scared, you know. He built the log cabin, kind of a uh, kind of little house on the prairie days, and his, his child got sick, and he needed to get medicine, and in, in order to get medicine, he had to cross this river, and he was scared. And he knew, he had heard that the ice was thick enough that he could walk across it, but he didn't know if it was late enough in the winter, and he didn't know if it was cold enough, and he was just so scared. He took off. He had this big pack on his back, and he took his pack off, and he, he kind of slid his pack out there, and he spread his weight out on all fours, and he slowly crawled across the river, listening for cracks, listening for cracks. He's so scared, and he makes it across. He breathes deep. He made it. And then he hears this noise, and he first he thinks it's, He thinks the the water's cracking, and he gets away from the crack, gets away from the ice, and he looks, and over the hill comes a man, a stagecoach with four horses, and the stagecoach rides right across the river, and the stagecoach driver winks at him as he goes by and says, you need anything? You good? That river, that water was eight feet, I mean, the ice was eight feet thick. He was fine. He just didn't have enough faith to enjoy it. But let me ask you, did he get across the river okay anyway? Yeah. Was it as easy as it could have been? Was it as joyful as it could have been? Was he as confident as he could have been? No. It took a lot longer. Things were a lot harder. But it didn't matter. Ultimately, the only thing that mattered was the strength of the ice. Now, I want you to ride in the stagecoach. I do. I want you to enjoy what there is to enjoy about life. I want you to be confident of who you are in Jesus but ultimately, even if you have a baby amount of faith, that's okay. That's enough. Because it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the strength of Jesus. And he's strong enough for us. And, and what does our faith do? Our faith unites us to him. It, it makes us one with him. And that's what the whole Bible is about, the whole New Testament. It, I remember the first time I read about union with Christ, and, and it was just overwhelming, this idea that that I'm not, it's not Jesus kind of saying, all right, you're forgiven, but hope you make it. I'm I'm in him. I'm one with him. All the blessings that he gets, I get. What what does that mean? It means we're one with him vicariously. Vicarious? What in the world does that mean? That means what he did, he did for us. What does that mean? You know what it means. Every one of you probably experienced it to one level or another yesterday. Who won yesterday? We did. Did you play football? Were you out on, did you how many touchdowns did you score? We say we did though, don't we? We say we did. Why? Because my team won or my team lost. And we feel it like it's ours. And I want you to know that's not a new thing. That's not an American thing. That's not a modern thing. That goes back at least as far as David and Goliath. Like This idea that there's a champion out there. And when he wins, we win. And that's how God designed you. And that's what Jesus did. He won. He won. He went to the cross for us, and Satan saw him there and says, This is my chance. And he plunged his spear into the side of Jesus. And Jesus grabbed that spear and pulled it, and pulled it, and pulled it further in. And he said, Satan, I'm not taking a little death, I'm taking all of it. I'm taking all of it because I didn't sin. And the sting of sin, the sting of death is sin. So your death has no sting on me. And I'm taking all of it so that my people will never know the sting of death. Because I'm winning it for them. We're, We're united with him vicariously. And as a result of that, we're united to him legally. What does that mean, legally? That's boring, that's separated from us. It's actually very, very important. He's your advocate. He is the one who pleads for you. And what does he plead? You need to know this, okay? Some of you think that uh, when you sin, God goes to, uh, Jesus goes to God and goes, Ricky blew it again. I know you really want to kill him. But because you like me, would you please forgive him again? And you think God the Father is looking at him going, "Ah, I really wanted to kill Ricky over this. But since you asked Jesus, I'll forgive him one more time. And you need to know none of that is true. What is really happening is, yes, Jesus is our advocate. And yes, he does plead for us. But what he pleads is for justice. He says to the Father in the judgment seat, He says, Father, I paid for that sin. That sin has already been paid for. It would be unjust. It would be wrong. It would be immoral for you to punish Ricky for a sin I've already paid for. And the judge goes, of course I'm not going to punish. That's why I sent you. Jesus isn't pleading for God to have... One more ounce of mercy. He's just asking for justice. You have been forgiven. Your sins are paid for. You're united with him vicariously and legally. You're not united with him emotionally and physically. Okay, and this is where it gets into the mystery, and I don't get it. The Apostle Paul describes the mystery like this. He says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church giving himself for her to, to make her without blemish and without wrinkle so he can present her to God for it is written man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh and this is a great mystery but i'm telling you it's about Christ and the church i'm telling you it's about Christ and the church Jesus becomes one with us so intimately that there is no place where where he ends and we begin. He is one with us so intimately that when we suffer, he suffers. When, When the apostle Paul was persecuting the church of Jesus, Jesus came to him and said, Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I feel it. Bianca and I went from dating to being boyfriend and girlfriend, that very important distinction, uh, the night that she looked at me and she said, I don't understand why, but when you feel bad, I feel bad. And that's how Jesus is. He's not not watching us suffer going, well, that looks like it hurts. But he's suffering in us and with us he could not be closer he feels worse about your pains than you do and it's not only emotional it's physical the two become one flesh and that's what we not only do we celebrate that this table is not just a um, it's just not a, not just a symbol of that it actually affects it it is it consummates it if I may use the word, you know, New Testament uh, people who study New Testament ethics and biblical ethics say you're not truly married until the marriage is consummated, and and as you consummate, you you not only are you celebrating the marriage and symbolizing the marriage, but you're affecting it. You're you're becoming one flesh. That's why sex always matters, and when you come to this table. You, right? You can't separate that. Once you swallow that bread and swallow that wine, there is no clear mark where the bread stops and you begin. You're one, and that's our relationship with Jesus. We're one. We are one. Everything that is His is ours. Everything that is ours is His. And and it, it's it's more than just legal. It's more than just some kind of declaration. It's experiential, it's emotional, it's physical, and ultimately, it gets even more intimate than that. It's eternal. When Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17, he says, Lord, I don't want to go to heaven without them. Let them be with us. Let them be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. And they in me, and you in me, and me in you, and us in them. And, and that is our future. Our future is to be one with the Lord of the universe in some kind of intimate hug, some kind of intimate relationship where we're able to maintain our identity. We're separate, and yet intimately in this embrace so that we're one. And it is more than you can imagine. You know, like the greatest moments in life are when you uh, are in those those reunion embraces. You know, at the, at the men's retreat, I showed a video that um, somebody took when when Will showed up and surprised me after uh, boot camp and tech school and, and just that embrace. And there was so much joy and relief and release and warmth And Those are the greatest moments in life, and that's what we have to look forward to eternally. And it's it's mind expanding, and I would encourage you to to honestly spend a lot of time meditating on what that's going to be like. And until then, we have a job, and that job is to practice union with each other. Because we are one in Christ, because we're one with Christ, we are one with each other in Christ. If I'm going to be one with him, that means I have to be one with you. Because if I'm one with him and you're one with him, we have to be one with each other. That's what Jesus prayed, right? That they would, the world would know that these are my people, they're special people, they're God's people. The world's going to know that these are God's people by the way they love each other. We have to be one with each other. And Paul hammers that out, because that's the reason why he's writing this letter, right? He's saying, y'all are fighting, and you're saying the Jews are better than the the Greeks, and the Greeks have to start acting like Jews if they want to be full Christians. And that is nonsense, and that cuts out the the heart of the gospel, because we are all one in Jesus. And he's very specific. He says, without racial distinction, there is no Jew or Greek. And so we have to live with no racial distinction. And, and, and I just want to challenge you. If you are like me, I grew up in the worst part of the country for this, right, where it was just never spoken. It was just always assumed that African Americans were lesser than. Um, just challenge your own heart on that. Is there any of that still within me? And if there is, I would I would encourage you to just purge it out and confess it, and ask the Lord to to, to get that out of you and be active, actively go against it. I uh, because our witness depends on it. I mean, we are in a in a st- in a time in history when we're basically witnessing an entire generation reject the faith of their parents and this is largely the reason why. This is what they're saying is the reason why. It's it's racism, it's sexism, it's classism, it's all three of the things Paul mentions and we have to fight against that and we have to re- reflect and practice the truth of the gospel before we can start criticizing those who are walking away. So ask yourself, is there any of that left? And It's also important because it shows you who God is. It shows you who God is. You, we can't, God is too big, too multicolored, too multidimensional um, for any one tradition to experiencing him fully experience them fully. So I'm going to come back to that. Let's just go through the other two. No racism, no sexism. There's no male or female. The distinction between male and female was gigantic in the ancient Near East. It was a very common prayer. God, thank you that I'm not a female. They weren't allowed to worship with the men. Women were not allowed to worship with men, and, and, and the distinctions were vast, and women were treated as less than, and that's sinful and wrong, and we have to confess that. We have to confess that that's remained part of, of our tradition. Even though we've, it, we've come very far, we haven't gone far enough. Uh, I was talking uh, to Will this last week, uh, Tuesday, uh, yes, Friday. I was talking to Will Friday about um, Operation Allied Refuge and and what he was doing to, to help these Afghanis uh, escape. And And one of the things he brought up was it was just evil the way the men would treat the women. I mean, men would would come up and ask me a question that I just answered for one of the women, and and I would say, I just told her, and the men wouldn't even look at the women, much less talk to them. It's just evil. And and Christianity has come a long way in in elevating or just recognizing equality uh, of men and women, but it's still not far enough. It's still... Lingers in our hearts, and I, I hear that when I hear men say things like, "Well, you know, the reason why women can't be elders is because women they can't forgive a grudge." i like, "Come on, are you serious?" I know men who are still mad at Terry Bradshaw for winning a Super Bowl. It's just, come on, grow up. That's not the reason. It's a mysterious reason, and I'm not sure about it, but I know that's not it. Stop belittling your sisters. And then there's the, the economic issue. The Apostle Paul says there's neither slave nor free, there's neither rich nor poor, and that's a huge issue in our world right now. You know, it's it's it's, it's very difficult uh, for different classes of people to get along, especially um, well. It, always, there's no especially. It's difficult for different classes of people to get along. I um. I used to think that the reason why people worshiped in different churches was because uh, we had th- different theological beliefs, and that was before I went to Ray. Ray was my mechanic. He had a, I, I think you can always trust a mechanic if the shop is right behind his house, right? Like he ain't going anywhere, so, you know, I can trust him. So I went to Ray, and Ray, as we got to know each other, had a very old car, and so Ray and I spent a lot of time together. And uh, one time I was there, he asked me to pray for his sister. He said, pray for my sister. I said, what's wrong with her? She's dying of cancer. I said, okay, Ray, I'll pray for her. Pretty blunt. He said, I always try to share the gospel with her, but she don't want to know anything about it. He said, I didn't care anything about the gospel until the Lord changed my heart. Now, what Ray just articulated in his perfect accent is, is regeneration before Conversion. That is, a, that is a Calvinistic theological belief that nobody except Presbyterians is supposed to believe. And I was so mad at him for putting it perfectly, and I'm like, but the reason I thought the reason you didn't come to my church is you didn't believe that. I didn't say this to him. I said, I'll pray for her. But in my car, I said, no, I, th- I thought you didn't believe that, and clearly you do believe that. So why don't you come to our church? Oh, there's nobody in my church. There's not a single person in my church, this years ago, uh, who hasn't graduated from college. And nobody in my church comes to church without a suit on. And you don't own a suit. That's why you don't come to church. And guys, not only are we destroying our witness by letting these things divide us, uh, but we're we're missing out on who God is. And what do I mean by that? I mean... I've had the privilege of worshiping with all kinds of people in many different ways. I grew up poor. I got accepted into wealthy circles. And and what I've seen is there's just different aspects of God's nature that's brought out differently. And the poor people have a very intimate day-to-day relationship with God. If you pray with the poor, they'll say things like, Lord, thank you that my lights didn't get turned off last week. Very intimate and day to day, and and if you, and if you worship with wealthy people, they have this this very high view of God. It's it's glorious, and they play you know uh, pipe organs that rattle the rafters, and they have this very high, beautiful view of God, which is also very accurate. And and if you if you're struggling with your faith and you're struggling with doubt, then I would encourage you to worship with African-American Christians, because I, I, I did this several years ago. I was really struggling in one Eastern. so I went to this African-American celebration of Good Friday, and as I watched uh, you know pastor after pastor get up and, and extinguish a candle and explain the gospel, I was just thinking, why? Why would any African-American accept the faith? that was taught them by slaveholders because it's true. And the truth of the gospel was able to even overcome that kind of injustice. And my, my faith was fed and, and every time you worship with a different kind of people you see it and you feel it and the, and the fullness of worship is there. i got a lot more to say but I've already gone over. So I'm going I'm to finish it up uh, right here. First of all if you feel, this is kind of a how-to, but if you feel less than, if the problem with you becoming united to your brothers uh, across racial, gender, or economic lines is that you feel less than, and I honestly think it's harder for the people who feel less than. Um, I grew up poor white. Poor whites were always the most violent racists, Um, and every other sin, probably. And uh, and one of our particular ones was that we found a way to hate people who, th- who in our minds thought they were better than us. Now, getting to be on the other side of the fence, I'm like, oh, wealthy people don't think they're better than poor whites. They just don't think about them at all. And that's another issue. But it's hard to get over that. It is. I mean, I, I remember when, when someone in my family would make a little money which just meant they got a job at Goodyear, right? But they're making more money than the rest of us. And uh, how my mom and dad would talk about them and be like, they've, they've outgrown their raisin. Like, no, they haven't. They just made a little money. Good for them. They're, they're just as nice, the exact same people they've always been. It, it is harder when you feel like someone out there is better than you. When you feel less than, it's a lot easier to be angry with them than it is to love them. And I want to remind you that nobody is ahead of you. The Apostle Paul actually talks about this. He talks about that when he says, if the foot should say to the body, I'm not part of you. it doesn't, He doesn't say, if the body looks at the foot and goes, you're just a stinking foot, get out of here. But if the foot looks at the body and says, I'm not an eye.'" I'm not important, I need to go off. It's this ability to despise yourself so much that you reject everybody else. And if that's a temptation for you, and it's a temptation for all of us, I wanna remind you that you are an heir of Abraham. There is nobody in Christ who is not a princess or a prince. You're the main character of every Disney story you are royal of royal lineage and there is nobody in front of you and if your problem is that you feel better than above more than which is problematic for people like me you know i feel like i'm tempted to feel like you know the reason i've moved up in classes is because i've worked so hard it's my you know, my moral fibers, me. I'm better than the people who didn't. You need to remember the words of uh, the first time I went to an AA meeting. This woman stood up. It was kind of free share day. And she said, you know, I, I really struggle with pride. But then I remember, every day I remember, i got to go to that meeting. And the only reason I go to AA is because I wrecked my life. And every time I walk in those doors, there's only one reason you walk in these doors. you've wrecked your life. And you're ready to confess that you're so sinful that God himself had to die for you. So there's nobody in front of me, but there's definitely nobody behind me. There's no I know more, right? I've lived longer than a lot of you. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I know more than a lot of you. I've sinned against more knowledge. I've sinned against more experience. I ought to never sin if you've been with the Bible as long as I have, and oh buddy, I do. There is nobody behind me, I assure you. We are all together. We are one with each other because we are one in Christ. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, this is a lot, but you are a lot, and you're wonderful, and you're glorious, and we love you, and we want to reflect your multicolored, multidimensional glory So help us to remember that there's no one in front of us and there's no one behind us, but we are one in Jesus. Now, Father, would you come and give us the grace to celebrate that fully and completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.